0: Maggie Smith. I am your host Maggie Smith. Well, here's what's been going on this week, so let's get into it. In the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, scientists were alarmed to find high levels of fecal bacteria in contaminated water, which has led them to officially reclassify Harvey as a literal shitstorm. <laughs> 62 Nebraska pastors joined together this week to release a statement declaring one cannot be both a Christian and a racist. Well, damn it, we have to try, responded Virginia. <laughs> a town in Mexico has beat a world record when 600 chefs teamed up to create a three ton vat of guacamole. But that still doesn't mean that it's for the table, Greg. <laughs> Recently, a disgruntled Google employee wrote a manifesto stating Google should de-emphasize gender equality in their hiring. Huh. Uh, Siri, what do you think about this? That is some fucking shitty male nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rosanna
1: Stevens and this is The Antidote for the Belladonna, an interview podcast profiling women and non-binary comedy writers set in a place of personal significance for them. The main stage theatre at the Second City, Chicago, features a famous narrow street front with four fake Grecian pillars leading to a stairwell, leading up to a box office selling merch, leading to a large stage with table service inside. But there are actually several theatres in the renowned comedy establishment. Many of these stages have featured self-devised shows by today's American comedy icons, when they were young and experimenting with their style and voice, their classrooms were these theatres inside the Second City Training Centre. In fact, these theatres are still that for those people. I saw Julia Sweeney do a stand-up show practising some material three years ago on the stage of Second City. It remains a place where people can practise their craft and skill before going out into the world and showing people what they have. And these classrooms and performance venues are next door to the Grecian main stage façade. The training centre has two of its own entries on either side of a 24-hour Starbucks. And when you walk in, you're able to use escalators and a lift to access several floors. When the centre's open, sometimes the foyers are filled with school-age students who are in school holiday programs or on a class tour, but we're bypassing all that noise and heading to one of these smaller theatres that I mentioned in search of this episode's guest. Maggie? Maggie Smith is a contributor for The Onion and The Reductress, and she's also spent time as a cast member for the Second City Theatricals, performing on Cruise Liner tours. Basically, she delivered Second City shows several times a day for people on a type of holiday that I can now safely and apolitically say are basically illegal due to COVID-19. While we do talk about her time on a Norwegian cruise liner, I'm meeting Maggie in one of the theatres named Judy's Beat Lounge to talk to her about the late night show that she hosts with the support of a production team and a stellar writers room. The News with Maggie Smith is a satirical news show that is taped live at the Second City. Maggie on and off screen is a performer. She is switched on, confident and generous. And my biggest takeaway from talking with her was, yes, it takes a trained style and a tight writer's room to create the kind of show that Maggie has. But after the interview, Maggie very sincerely assured me that you can make a show like this. It doesn't matter where you're based or whether it's in your living room streamed live from your phone. Developing a show takes time. But to start out... You just got to start out.
0: My first foray into any comedy was I got an internship here just in college. I went to Northwestern, so it was not that far. I would just take the train and come do like a regular office internship. Because I was like, oh, I think I want to be a writer, but I, don't really, I didn't really know. I was like a kid or whatever. And as internships do, they did not pay me, but they gave me one free improv class. And I was so scared, though. Like, at, at the end of the day, I was like, I can't do this. I'm really scared. I, I assumed that improv was from watching like the genius of whose line is it anyway and that's it <laughs> like that's all i knew about improv i assumed that it was like a smart contest or like an outwitting contest like you have to be so so smart and then whoever says the smartest thing like that's your favorite and that's who wins which is insane because within i don't know 10 20 minutes I realized that's the complete opposite of what improv is. It's about supporting each other and making your scene partner look good and them also about making you look good because, of course, there's fear that you're going to look stupid or what you're going to say is dumb. And so once I did that, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm I'm hooked, and I've basically been here ever since. It's been like, Jesus Christ. It's been so many years. It's been... (laughs) I think it's been like eight years or something, seven years. That can't be right. Maybe six. Let's say six. Let's make it an even six years. So taking an improv class is taking an acting class and a writing class at the same exact time. Because you're coming up with what you're going to say, but you also have to emotionally react realistically. And so it's a perfect thing for someone who wants to be, like myself, who wants to be a writer, actor. You know what? Fuck that. Who is a writer, actor? I am not aspiring that shit anymore, bitch. I pay my bills. And so, yeah, so essentially it was this building, this beautiful Harvard of improvisation, as we will tell you on the doors of Stage, that really helped uh, help me figure out my own voice. So the cruise ship gig is uh, an improv and a sketch actual acting gig. And the news was just myself feeling like I had, I wanted to try out the waters of just figuring out, what do I have to say, though? What do I actually have to say? Or how can I do it? Or do I want to do this? Or what's it like to just play yourself saying your own thoughts on stage? Hello. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Get Come the on out. in. Get the, get the fuck out. Sit down. <laughs> that, that might happen. Sorry. That's Let's... totally
1: fine. This is the appeal of where we are. Where are we, Maggie?
0: <laughs> we are at in uh, Judy's B Lounge at Second City, Chicago. And what's really
1: important about Judy's Beat Lounge?
0: Uh, this is where we taped my show, The News with Maggie Smith. And we'll tape in the future. We're on hiatus now, so I say that like it's dead. How long did yeah. you tape for? I started, we started the show probably, gosh, like over four years ago, we started talking about the show, which is an insane because that's how long like high school is, which that blows my mind. Um, and we started it at Second City in the Beat Lounge the same way that a lot of student shows get put on here at Second City which is you pitch to you know the training center hey we have this show can we have a four-week run and they say yes or no and so it was just one of those shows at the beginning of it and then a producer at Second City one of my really good friends Jesse Swanson was like Second City should have a show like this so he sort of helped go around some like producey ways to make it an actual Second City training center and then Second City proper sort of uh, production. So,
1: yeah. What is the difference between a group of students or a graduate show here where students who have studied here put on a series of their own sketches or are putting on like an improv show and something being more formally Second City affiliated?
0: The main one is you have to pay to do those first ones. And we did not have to pay to do that second one.
1: Sweet. Sweet. Are there conditions that you do have to adhere to as a product of that? For example, yeah. what does your writer's room look like and is it reflective of anything about Second City?
0: So our writer's room was actually just legitimately a group of my friends who I want to say almost all of them at the beginning were my friends who worked with me here in the box office. So like absolutely it wasn't like, oh, the Second City has presented these Second City writers. It was like, well, we all love comedy. It's why I work why we all want to work here. So let's make something. And so it started off as just like friends from the box office and we made this video. And as it progressed, a lot of those same people stayed with us. And then over the years, the writer's room changed a lot and we had people come in. We had people move to new cities, which is very sad, but happens a lot in Chicago. It's part of the culture until we landed with our last writer's room, which was, I want to say 90% second city employees. Once again, that could mean like literally they work in box office or, you know, they they teach or whatever it is that they do. The Second City is a very mixy kind of company. A lot of people do like six different jobs in this building.
1: <laughs> also, yeah. something I've really noticed in Chicago is that most people aren't just affiliated with one theater. So oh, so
0: true. No no one is. That's super weird if you are.
1: Yeah. And it makes sense freak. then that somebody might be working at Second City yeah. and also end up doing this because they're yeah. doing a bunch of other stuff as well.
0: Oh, Definitely. Everyone here is crazy. Everyone puts a lot of different things on their plate and is doing shows at IO or The Annoyance or is teaching or is working somewhere else or, you know, everyone has their day job also. So it's very hardworking people and for like no reward other than the show itself, which we like and we're glad that we have that, you know, it's not like we're making any money off of this.
1: You mentioned uh, the kind of things that people do in their days. What does a typical day in the life of Maggie Smith look
0: like? Oh, that is impossible to define. It is, and it has actually changed a lot recently, especially with the show being on hiatus. But I actually do now have a pretty steady day job. We work uh, in the Loop, and we just moved to a new office literally today. Oh my god! Yeah, I like unpacked my desk. And all that stuff today, which was crazy. I also am an actor. uh, And so I just got cast in a show called Drunk Shakespeare here in Chicago. And there's also a cast in New York. And so a typical day for me lately has been like going to work and then going immediately to rehearsal (laughs) for hours. And then uh, I just had my first two shows this weekend. So that'll start to calm down. Next week I'm going to Spain to teach at Barcelona Improv Festival. Also, that same weekend, I have a different late night talk show called The Late Bit Show that I executive produce and will also be hosting. That's about like nerdy stuff. And so we have like a writer's meeting every Thursday for those. I contribute to The Onion as well. There's just like a lot of, there's a lot, there's way too much going on. What do you keep regular? in oh God, the guy. irregularity? Probably my day job. I legitimately think like having a day job where I can just go in and have something in my life and day be, okay, I get there at 10 and I leave at three. Like it's a part-time job, it's hourly, it's downtown. Like I don't have to deal with rush hour traffic. It's so great. It's five hours I'm in and I'm out. It makes my money. I don't have to think about that anymore. Like it's done. I think I'm pretty lucky because a lot of people have to freelance a lot, which I used to do for a couple years it's nice and fun in a lot of ways, but it's also very stressful because you don't know where you're going to get your money next. Or you work like a full-time job that you hate, which is crazy. So I think I kind of hit a nice little stride that's keeping me sane. My work has nothing to do with my passions, which is I think so important. I think variety is like one of the most important things in my personal creativity brain, like how I need to make things happen. I need to have like all kinds of different stuff going on.
1: Speaking of variety, that's something that makes me think of your show a little bit because oh, damn. you have a lot of different bits in the show, but yeah. there is also a very central way that yeah. you do news, which I really like.
0: Yeah, the the thing that's in the center, I think, is always the voice of the show, right? And that comes down to, like, my face and my mouth saying the words. And so I think that probably – and me being able to edit down the script to what I want it to be, but the writers of my – incredible writers room sometimes they'll pitch me like crazy things where I'm like that's never happening (laughs) we're not gonna do that (laughs) you're nuts and then you know there but there's all I'm the only reason I even bring that up is just because like of course there's a lot of variety we have like super cool writers in the show you have segments how do the segments work oh that's such a good that is such a good question and the answer is failing (laughs) I would say, like, the show would, could and would often change drastically episode to episode because we would be like, cool, actually that segment didn't fly the way we thought it was going to fly, or it makes more sense to do it later, or actually it makes sense to do something in between those two segments, literally, or like mixing two segments together. And so we knew that we wanted to always have segments because we didn't want it to just be one big chunk of information, A, because we don't have the resources with everyone having jobs, and a life and this not offering you any financial way to feed you. We knew that people couldn't just like do a full-time job of writing a full-ass main story, like John Oliver style. And two, John Oliver is a good idea because he can do that. So why would we try and offer the same thing that people can get professionally and much better (laughs) than what we could offer, which is like, hey, this is going to live on the internet. These pieces should try and be small and chunky so that people can watch them really quick. Chunky pieces. That's how I would describe my show. Just mm, chunky. Some chunky pieces. Delicious.
1: Yeah, it makes yeah. me think of vomit, but like not because yeah. I think of your show as vomit. Yeah, but my now I've done that, that to up myself. Chunky
0: vomit. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, internet. But it's funny that I even say that we try and make it short because we failed at that every time. It was always like, oh, we should make the episode be 12 minutes long on the dot. And it would always be like 22. Like we would fail so hard. It would be twice as long as we, yeah. It's really hard to make things short. Like that's, I mean, I know that's like a classic writer problem. That's the problem with writing. It's super easy to write it all down on a page. And the hardest thing is to edit it out. But I felt, you know, I felt bad. Like people's People's bits are great. It wasn't my own bits. I Those would be the first to go. I don't care. But people's bits or their ideas or their sketches would be too long. And I'd be like, oh, well, it's really good.
1: Something that I find so mysterious about the late night process is the fact that you have a writer's room and then they... Fundamentally, in a sense, have to think about writing for you. Oh, and yeah. firstly, I would oh, imagine yeah. that takes some time getting accustomed for to. Sure. What was the early part of that process in making the show when people are yeah. working out how to be you but not be you?
0: Well, I think that's super interesting because I think ultimately it comes down to a lot of that weight falls down on my shoulders because I'm ultimately the one who is choosing whose things get in so if i'm like oh i like this style of joke or this topic the more we do it the more they can see and have a sense of my voice the other thing is luckily they all knew me because like i said this was just a a fun thing that i was doing with my friends at the time it wasn't uh apply here i don't know you stranger Um, And so everyone sort of knew where I was at. Not to say that like we weren't all figuring out the voice together. And then the other reason it fell on my shoulders is because I didn't know what the fuck I was yet. Like I didn't know what I had to say or how I was trying to say it at the time. And so a lot of it was just, once again, failing. Failure is the best worst thing ever. It's so great. Um, You have to do it a thousand times before you realize like, oh... I don't actually care about that. Or like, we don't need to talk about that. This is way more important to talk about or way more interesting to talk about. Or I haven't heard, you know, John Oliver talk about this. I bring that up a lot because we call ours a main story and he calls his a main story.
1: Also, I do think there are some similarities between you and John Oliver in that you both do these investigative style segments yeah. that are humorous yeah
0: we stole from him yeah <laughs> <We> <laughs> like basically like I wasn't
1: gonna like straight off say we that or see you or anything him. but
0: <laughs> <laughs> please no one tell everyone be chill
1: how did you come to realize that that's the kind of thing that you wanted to do and yeah. also I really like the fact that you often focus on Chicago stories yeah
0: that was a good thing and you know it's so funny you say that because people kept being like you should do that more and I'd be like yeah, but I want to talk about voter fraud in Missouri. <laughs> and will be like, that's not, you don't know anything about that. But no, no, no. Okay. To answer your question, uh, which is why am I might exactly like John Oliver in every single yeah, way. Yeah, that was the question. Um, I think the first step of that is obviously I love him. I think he's legitimately changing the world. He puts his money where his mouth is. By his money, I mean HBO's massive amounts of wealth. And he will actually try and make change. Like the Marlon Bundo book, you know, like physical examples of actual things that he does. But uh, I I think even before his show, I was very fascinated with The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. What I liked about uh, him and also, of course, like Colbert Report and Samantha Bee's show and all these shows was that they are not even necessarily... The funniest people in the room, but they're like the smartest people in the room and they're using those smarts to then affect your point of view. And it actually did. I will straight up tell everyone out there in the world that Jon Stewart helped me become a liberal. Because when I was a little kid, I was not. Whoa. Tell us about bomb your childhood Um, as a not liberal (laughs) my lovely lovely parents who I do love very much are conservatives and of course when you're a kid you just believe whatever they tell you and that's great uh and they a lot of their points of view are very well founded um but now I'm just like a crazy liberal like snowflake you know there I have two younger brothers and we're all just like crazy liberals And I really think part of that was seeing Jon Stewart and being like, oh my God, this guy is so funny. And he's making me laugh while he's talking about this devastating, devastating truth. And it is true. And so if his point of view, if if you can punch up and also make me laugh at the same time, you're the smartest person in the room. You know what I mean? And so Colbert Report was on at the time and I was like, I tuned into that. Tina and Amy on Weekend Update, that as well. So I think it was like, Those, watching those two-liners or those main stories or whatever they were, even before last week tonight, it was, like, very helpful in the formative years of me getting into comedy. It was one of, like, the first things I was like, oh, someone, someone can do that. That's really cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Our main story tonight is about Kentucky Senator and Merman cursed by Ursula the Sea Witch, Mitch McConnell. (laughs) Mitch McConnell has had a few titles in his career, Judge, Majority Whip, and my personal favorite, Cocaine Mitch.
1: Cocaine Mitch!
0: That's a real thing people called him, and I'm not going to get into the details right now of why, but I will say that if you're ever at a party and this man offers you cocaine, run, because not only is this a sting operation, you've also found yourself in the Republican Party. His most important title though is that of the Senate's Majority Leader. For those of you who don't know what a Senate Majority Leader is, he's kind of like the stepdad of the Senate. He didn't get to pick him, but he's here now and he's making a lot of rules. (laughs) McConnell began his role as the leader of the Senate Republicans way back in 2007 when he became the Minority Leader. Shortly after, when Obama took office, he began a campaign of what scholars call being kind of a huge dick. Now, there are a lot of things that come to mind when you think Mitch McConnell, like Republican Hardliner or being the cover of Jowls magazine. <laughs> but uh, one of the things he's most known for is trying to hold up President Obama's entire agenda. For example, cloture, aka the process by which the Senate ends a filibuster, had in all of American history only ever been invoked 86 times. But during Obama's presidency, it was needed 82 times. That's almost double. To give you an idea of how much this man loved stonewalling progress under Obama, McConnell once proposed legislation, then panicked when Democrats agreed with it and turned around and filibustered his own proposal on the Senate floor. Which leads me to ask the question, I have to ask, Mitch, is this a fetish for you?
1: Maggie, can you describe the place that we are in a little for us? I
0: can. For those of you who have not had the pleasure of being in one of Second City's beautiful student stages, Judy's Beat Lounge, it is a small, I would say a small, intimate, um, but nice, like medium upscale looking theater. So the walls are painted this really nice 2010s, like dark gray, you know, like gray is like the color right now, or like maybe it was, I don't know. And then the back wall of the theater is brick. So it looks like an exposed brick wall with a huge industrial-looking fake. It's all, guys, it's all fake. This is a theater. But industrial-looking window, that looks really cool. And also, I will say, we're not in here during the nighttime, but a stage manager can make it change all kinds of colors. And then it looks very, very cool. And then I think probably my favorite part about this theater is how dope the seats are, which they're all, like, mid-century, a variety of different-looking colors, Seats with this cool wood, and there's like t- a lot of teal. There's a lot of patterns. It's great. It looks very nice. Some of the plaid chairs in here remind me of John Candy. That is ridiculously accurate, and now I will never unsee that. Yeah, it's like pants you would wear. Yeah. These are okay, so okay, so take it back. These are mid century John Candy pants chairs.
1: And then we're actually sitting at the back of the mm-hmm. theater on the yeah. back row. Yeah, this is the couch. So the stage is currently the back of the room for us. Yeah. And it kind of also, the way that I think of it is, it's, it's a mixture of like industrial stylings and then there's a couple of classic Second City chairs on Bent the stage. Bentwoods. Bentwoods. Bentwoods,
0: yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, perfect for improv because they're so light. Smart. There you go.
1: And it reminds me a bit of, like, if Sesame Street went industrial.
0: Oh, my God. Yes. Once again, very well put. Mm. And I can't unsee that now. And I wouldn't want to. (laughs) And I will tell everyone. (laughs) Just need some puppets to... Oh, my God. That's what you're going to add to your show. It's going to be just a puppet. (laughs) The news asterisk with puppet city.
1: And then behind us, we have the the sound booth. Mm -hmm. When you are doing the show... Yes. What changes about this room? And what do you add in? Oh, a
0: lot, actually. That's a really good question. Yeah, physically, a lot. Um, We will move out like 30% of the chairs. We'll just take them out. We don't care about there being a large audience. We just care about there being people here to add laughter and therefore energy to the video. I mean, like we could technically film it without an audience, but like we love the feel of that alive audience actually brings to it so but we'll take out a fuck ton of the chairs there'll be three cameras set up there'll be one in the middle straight at my face and then there'll be one on either side for my correspondence and then my guests and my favorite part that changes is over by the md station that means music director so there's a piano in basically every improv stage probably in the world but at least in chicago and we will have a band who comes in and plays music for us so we have like a live band or sometimes just my friend clark on a guitar Love you Clark. Thank you for all you do. And uh that is super cool. My dad always points that out. That's his favorite part of the show. He's like, "You were great. The band is the best." Wow. Yeah. That's support. It it you know, it's something.
1: It's parental support. It's true. Full on.
0: Yeah, that's how he is.
1: The other thing that is quite unique about this show is of course that it is filmed. Yeah. And that is another moving part. Yes. So how do you get people to film it? Oh, that's such a good question. And the answer
0: is I don't. (laughs) It's so great. Kyle deals with it. (laughs) You get a team of people who actually want to do it. One thing that we are very spoiled with is around the same year, Man, it's been... Just time is weird. That's... Sorry, my brain went out the window because I was just thinking about how weird time is. But about the same time, the Harold Ramis Film School started at Second City. Um, And so, you know, Jesse, who is our producer, and Kyle had a great idea to incorporate people from the Harold Ramis Film School, which... Is largely a right like it's largely content based film school rather than like oh you're gonna learn how to operate a camera but still there's people who obviously are great with sound or operating cameras so we would get super super good people from the crew just like snag them from Harold Ramis and they would come in and help us shoot. Even that said, like, Kyle, and then we had a couple other super great people who were almost constantly there. Andrew Newton was our DP for a lot of them. Logan Bose was there. Tony Lazzaroni, a.k.a. Tony Pepperoni, who would run basically all tech things. Sometimes they would direct, but basically, like, this super great team of people who actually wanted to do the thing that abhors me. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to have to deal with uploading and editing, none of that. If you love that, I'm so jealous, because if you can do that on your own, you can do anything. You can like, write a sketch, film a sketch, be in the sketch, direct the sketch, edit the sketch. You don't need anyone. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to have people who actually want to do that stuff.
1: As we've mentioned before, you have a writer's room as well. Yes. Would you talk me through how the writer's room sits down and then comes up with a singular segment?
0: Well, basically, towards the end, we started coming up with this really good system where we would break down the purpose of each meeting by weeks. Once again, this was like, this came from just failure, like of just doing it probably like two years straight without doing that and then being like, oh, we could do this. And so we would break it down by weeks and week one would be pitches. And you could pitch any of the segments that we had, whether it was a correspondent segment or for a while we were doing fake commercials, like satirical, really small, short commercials. And of course the main stories or whatever that I would be talking about chiefly. And so that would be week one. And then the next week we would like punch up The story from before so as you can see it's already kind of complicated because since the show is monthly and the writers room pitches were you know every single week we would have to overlap the schedules of other ones on top of it so it was it was a little bit of a a controlled chaos but you know we'd have punch-ups the next week and that was a super interesting process because how this would work is someone would be assigned to write the main story, whatever it was, whether it was about like voting or vice presidents or whatever it was about. And then they would bring in their quote unquote final draft or you know, final draft for now. That's never how it works. And then we as a group would go through it and read it. And any moments that I had personally gone through and highlighted in blue were where I wanted there to be alts or maybe jokes that like there wasn't a joke there. But I was like, I think there's a potential for a joke here. And we would just riff in the room. And that's how we would write our main stories. <laughs> and then I would go through, for a while it was me, and then I would bring my head writer towards the end when powers, and he would help me like figure out which of the thousands of amazing jokes I was going to have to put into the actual final script. <laughs> and then that would be the one that we would actually do.
1: This has actually been a really successful way of doing things because I recently watched a segment that you did independently of the news about recycling. Yes! Okay, yes. Can you tell me about how Mm -hmm. you got that gig and what
0: it was? I have like three different things I want to say about this and I want to, I don't know where to start. The first way uh, that it came about was actually because of the news. I actually have a friend who works at Chicago Magazine and he reached out to me. He's super, he's like super successful. He like makes these, I don't know how many people are Chicago based who are listening right now, but if you are and you know those videos from Chicago Magazine that everyone has on Facebook that are like food porn. <laughs> they're like, this cocktail bar has like cotton candy topped or whatever. Like, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I'm sorry, this is so boring for you. But like, they're like Chicago famous videos. And DS, his name is DS, he makes those videos. So he's been making those this whole time and he works there and he's like, hey, I actually want to do something like the news, but at Chicago Magazine, are you in? And I was like, uh, yes, I'm obviously in. And so We did two segments for them there. The recycling one is very near and dear to my heart because I'm also a very, um, I'll yell at you if you don't put your thing in the recycling bin kind of person. And so it came about because he saw that and I knew him already. And so he put us in touch with the right people and we made those two videos. And then there was like this, Weird, will they, won't they, where we were considering working the show into being, like, a combination with Chicago Mag and the show that was existing, and we kind of realized, like, hey, Chicago Magazine isn't, like, the right, they don't want, like, satire, and they're great, I freaking love Chicago Magazine, and I I can't believe that they let us do that stuff, but... You know, it's it's like a magazine about things that are great to do in Chicago. They don't want you, like, yelling about Trump. <laughs> like, you don't open Chicago Magazine to be like, oh, I'm gonna get my satire fix, <laughs> right? And so we're like, okay, we'll we'll keep the show here, and then we'll continue doing random stuff for them there. But it's funny that you mentioned that my I was doing, like, some Chicago-centric stories earlier because I actually was doing them more, and then that kind of led to the Chicago Welcome. Magazine thing. This is Chicago Explained. I am Maggie Smith of The News with Maggie Smith, so... Let's get down and dirty. There is a long-standing myth that Chicago doesn't actually recycle. Word is that anything you put into a blue recycling bin isn't actually recycled, but is thrown in the same truck as the rest of the garbage. That there's no point in even trying to recycle because it all ends up in the same place. Like sorting your M&Ms. Blue, green, peanut, crispy doesn't really matter at the end of the day, does it? Maybe you believe your recyclables end up where all trash ends up. The Wrigleyville Taco Bell. Is it a myth or is it true? Does Chicago recycle? The answer, thank Rom, is yes, Chicago does recycle. All right, we did it. We are curing the planet. We're in. Take that, Indianapolis and Gary. Not Indiana, just my friend Gary and I are in a fight. Okay, so let's take a look at who else is in our green little club, shall we? All right, so Seattle diverts 60% of its waste from the landfill, that is great, that's great. And oh, snap, it says here that San Francisco diverts a whopping 80% out of its landfills. Nice work, San Fran. And then there's the entire country of Sweden, which diverts more than frickin' 99% of its waste from landfills. Unfortunately, it's in the form of IKEA shelving units. So let's see, how does Chicago stand? Less than 10%?
1: So, before you're writing your own show with a bunch of really fantastic, hilarious people, yeah. you're on a boat.
0: <laughs> yes, actually, in the middle of it. I got it in the middle. I had to. It was was actually, I mean, of course it wasn't bad timing because it was really great to go on the ship no matter what happened. But we were just revving up to do it. And then it was like, I have to leave. Because I got it very quickly. And then I had to leave. And like, I forget something like two weeks or like a month or something later. And so I had to tie up all my loose ends. And that was unfortunately a loose end. We were like just about to bring the show back. And then everyone was like, Are you kidding me? You're going to go away on a cruise ship? Uh, And I fucking did. Sorry. And I I loved the experience of going on it and performing for like people. Look, let me tell you right now, there's nothing for people to do on a cruise ship. So if you have a 1,200 person theater and then you do a sketch show in that theater, it will be full of 1,200 people, which will never happen to me again. Like doesn't matter how famous you are. There's no like there's no time you're going to do a sketch show for 1,200 people every week. So that was awesome. Here's what's not awesome. I get seasick. It turns out so not great. That part was bad. Really bad.
1: How did you card? Yeah.
0: I mean... (laughs) pills. Um, just like pills, ginger ale, C bands, the whole lot. If anyone's been on a cruise trip, you'll know about C days and C days are when you're just at sea for the whole day. (laughs) It's a C day. And so luckily for us, we only had two C days. So like day one was a C day and day two was a C day. And so luckily for us, we only had to do anything on that second one. And so the first C day I was like, okay, it's fine. It's gonna be fine. But every now and then we would have a super bad second C day. And I, that was like, the show that we would have to do super fun show, but it was like a three hour murder mystery in the middle of lunch. So it was like a lunch. It was like a lunch murder mystery comedy. You could smell the food as well while you were seasick. And eat it. Yeah. So like, yeah. And that I would, I would like almost always be, there was like probably five total of the four months where I was, I was like an okay level of seasick for it. So I felt really bad for my cast. Also for that specific show, I had to be on stage almost the whole time because it was a murder mystery, but like between two cops. And so I was one of the cops. And so the two cops are like the main characters. They have to stay on stage the whole time and like run the shit, you know. I did once throw up in the middle of a show. And they had to go on stage and do the rest of the show without me. How did they edit you out? (laughs) They did a great job. They did such a good job because there was no notice. And they just did it i think it was relatively early like maybe we had done like four or five shows only so it wasn't even you know what i mean it wasn't like they were like oh we we know your lines we can just do it they just improvised around where i was supposed to be that was that like really big sketch i was talking about with the 1200 people and in the middle of the we did two shows in a row and in the middle of the first one that's when i threw up so they had to do half of the first one and then an entire second one without me Oh my gosh. I know. So that, I know that's why you guys tuned in, was to hear a bunch of sea vomit stories.
1: Yeah. I think we've now so. mentioned vomit twice. Oh, great. So great. In this episode. Have you so. considered
0: calling this podcast The Vomit? <laughs> the Vomcast.
1: Sure. I'll great. call it The Vomcast. Mm. That's what it's going to be called from yeah. now on. Every guest that I have on the show, I ask them one very important question. Mm. And that mm. is kind of about like illuminating what it is that you find funny and what you love. Oh my God, I love that. That's great. And I'm wondering if you have a piece or pieces Mm. of comedy that can come from anywhere and
0: anything that you really admire. Yeah, man, which one to choose? I think one thing that really inspired me, and I, I truly don't know if this is answering your question at all. Is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That is so <laughs> valid. It is not a comedy, but it is, it was the show I was watching in high school at like 4 a.m. instead of going to sleep, which I should have been doing, when I realized with like a jolt that someone wrote this. You know what I mean? And that you could write these things. How did you realize? I, I truly don't know if it just said written by Joss Whedon. <laughs> And I never noticed it. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it's maybe because the people on it were speaking in a way that stood out to me. It was different and it stood out to me in a way that was like enough to know that like they were speaking weird or speaking different or speaking how I wanted people to speak was like, oh, you can do that. I think it was probably more along the lines of that. I was watching like that and Gilmore Girls and West Wing all at the same time when I kind of realized That's that. like you know? quick
1: repartee. I small know.
0: Customers. Can you believe it inspired me to just to try and like prove to people that I'm smart? <laughs> that's basically. But <laughs>
1: that's, that's like, not why you do comedy, <laughs> yeah, Maggie Smith.
0: Please validate my brain. Um, yeah I I do think though that's a, a huge part of what I like in comedy is I mean I love silly comedy that has no point of view whatsoever so much but like the things that really stand out to me are the things that have an actual point of view that are punching up or are saying something there's many different forms of satire and some of it's lame cartoons and some of it's like a quip on Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> for sure yeah uh, or you know John Oliver's show obviously you know or that's a huge influence to me or like I said it earlier Tina and Amy on Weekend Update like come on one yeah. of
1: my favorite things about John Oliver is the fact that he is a pest <laughs>
0: Yeah, he's like in he's like always up in people's business. Yeah, and he's yeah. he's never oh, yeah.
1: like trying to do something utterly profound. Oh yeah. Like what I want about John Oliver, he would never say that he has that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The way that he will up a joke is by making it real. And dumb. Yes. And like so dumb. As bizarre mm-hmm. and nonsensical so true. as possible. And real, the episode I'm thinking of is the Texas sheet cake. Uh, I didn't see. I heard
2: about this with the, the Al Tex.
1: Yeah, that's
0: one, it's like the biggest sheet cake in the with world.
1: A, yeah, it's the biggest sheet cake in the world. But there's something else about it that the whole purpose of this bit is to
0: completely humiliate a dictator. It's the thing. Like he's doing it in such a dumb way. Yeah and it's so stupid and so smart at the same time yes so the dumbest smartest I think like Mike Sure shows made me think of that too I listen so much to The Good Place the podcast which is an amazing podcast and the host of it Mark Evan Jackson is always like this is the smartest dumbest show on television and he's 100% right it's so cerebral and it's about like ethics and shit but it's like making a dick joke you know? yes <laughs> like it's, it's it's incredible there it's are literal so cool. food puns yeah. everywhere that's so true Megan yeah.
1: Amram <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, like. just
0: out there in the world. What
1: are you doing at the moment now that the news is on a bit of a hiatus? Yes.
0: Variety is like the main thing that I care about in life for my sanity. So I'm working on, of course, a thousand things. One thing I'm working on is the Late Bit Show, which is the most similar thing to the news. So it's another late night style talk show. However, this one is truly about like nerd culture. You know, We have a sketch where J.K. Rowling is going to come out and say a bunch of facts from harry potter
1: please tell me that's a riff on the whole twitter meme that was like jk rowling just making stuff up about harry potter to keep it relevant
0: it's basically about that but it's also okay here is the point of view of it in my opinion, is that people pan her all the time acting like she's coming out trying to keep Harry Potter relevant all the time when all she's doing is answering people's goddamn questions. Like, she'll literally answer. And some of these things that she said, (laughs) people, because I love her, I'm sorry, I fucking love her. Some of the things that she said that people get really pissed about, she didn't say them out of nowhere. Like, the whole Dumbledore is gay thing came out because someone asked, like, years ago, someone asked at a panel, like, about Dumbledore's love life and she said that. You know, she didn't just, like, spew it out, like, here, world, and like, do-do-do, announcement. Like, she said it, and someone asked. The most recent one, which is amazing, is that they didn't have pipes, right? Like, do you know this one? Okay, great. No. Okay, here we go. This is, I cannot wait to see this reaction. So, it was about the Chamber of Secrets. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where you ask the question, and the answer goes too far. So... The Chamber of Secrets was built in, like, whenever it was built, whenever Salazar Slytherin was there, which means that they didn't have pipes before then. Mm -hmm. So how did wizards relieve themselves? They just did it where they stood, and then they vanished the evidence. This is a canon fact from the Harry Potter universe. (laughs) This is real. This is real. (laughs) This is true fact. I mean, it's fiction, but it's fiction facts. Recently, that came out. And, I mean, you're telling me right now that if you couldn't just, like, poop yourself and then vanish it you wouldn't do that come on people so why did people stop
1: doing that <laughs> know, is the drill. question
0: so see i'm team joe basically someone tweeted this fact like in 2019 but this came out like four years ago so mm-hmm. it's like people are acting like she's saying it out of nowhere but like just because the twitter learned about it today doesn't mean that she just like spewed it out so it's her being like really pissed that people think she does that but then she sort of does that <laughs> that's like the whole idea of, that's the whole premise of the sketch i think it's crazy god god I love harry potter so much god damn it god damn it i love harry potter so much
1: so with everything that you're doing at the moment yes what do you need to keep doing what you're doing and to do whatever comes next? Oh, I
0: love it, chocolate. Also variety, I said that probably 17,000 times, but variety is truly the thing. I think that probably does come from, uh, I moved like every year of my life when I was growing up, more or less, and I think it comes from that of like, okay, great, we did that cool thing, let's do a new thing. So I I need variety, and that can be anything from like, I'm gonna eat different lunch today (laughs) to like, I'm gonna work on like six different projects at the same time. I'm not someone who reads one book at a time, if that makes sense. I have to have like three different books maybe more different I've been
1: feeling so guilty about that so I'm really glad that you do it too why don't feel guilty I'm I feel I tell myself no that good brains only do one thing that's so dumb
0: that's fucking stupid I mean if it great because I'm still doing it it, like this is the thing
1: I'm just walking around feeling guilty
0: still reading three books at once when it comes to the books yeah okay great so don't feel guilty you do it and it's fine and no one no one is policing you right like there's no one out there like (gasps) but here's my thing about that too is like reading is so good for you why would you make it a chore why, like If you want to do something that's good for you, why would you make it a chore? That's being like, I'm eating too many fruits. I should, I should only be eating one fruit at a time. No, that's bullshit. If you want to eat a fruit salad, you should probably eat a fruit salad. It's good for you. Eat it. Eat it and read it. Read it, read it, eat it. Read it. You've spoken
1: a lot about the value of failing. Yeah. And I think the thing that I've heard you follow up with repeatedly is an instance of learning from the failing. Yes. Not oh, just yes. failing. Oh, oh my God. Of yeah. I'd really like for you to describe, or even if you have like a particular story of something that failed and then what you did next. I mean, like the most obvious thing that comes to mind is
0: like auditions. The news, luckily, like because of how many amazing people are involved, we never had a show that was like bad. Oh, I guess like a good one is I contribute to The Onion. And one thing that you do every week, they'll like send you a link and be like, here, (laughs) here's the setup now. Tell us the jokes for it. And we will like buy them from you if we think they're funny. And I swear to God, every single time I'm like, this one is the best one I've ever written. Every single time, like every time, they won't go with that one. And they either won't buy any for me that week or they'll buy like the one I put in as filler. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you're like, what? That's the one? So I feel like that happens all the time. Legitimately, you just have to put it out there and see what happens. Because if it fails, the worst thing that's going to happen is you get your new prompt next week. And if it gets out there, and you're like, oh, this is filler, maybe they'll buy it. They might, they might actually take it, right? And they might actually run it. And that's really cool. And then you get paid. And money is great. It goes failing and then money. Those are my main priorities <laughs> when it comes to comedy.
1: Maggie Smith, morally yes. sound, mm, correct. ethically secure,
0: and so rich.
1: And so rich. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about this fear of failure that occurs. Oh, yeah. And from what I can kind of glean and from my own experiences of fear of failure what I'm really fundamentally afraid of is fear of having support after I have failed
0: like being rejected. that's so true. Yeah that's so true. How do
1: you make a community where that you don't have to worry about that or do you worry about
0: it? I will say (laughs) I still struggle with it today. I mean who among us does not? If you don't good for you or you're a sociopath I don't know but like, of course, I still worry about it all the time. I feel like the more I do improv, for example, and the higher of, like, the, the ladder I climb in the world of Chicago improv and the more, like, professional shows you're doing, the more stage fright I get. Because it's made up. It's always made up. It's always improv. And, like, you're working with the best, you know. This is a really great show. People paid money for it. But it could still suck. Like, I do these really great improv shows every now and then with this group of like super dope, all professional improvisers. And sometimes we have two show nights and sometimes our first show is incredible. We're like, that's how you do it. We did it. And then our second show, the same exact cast, it's not as great, right? Or it's like bad. Like it might be like, oh, I don't think the audience liked that that much. I don't think we succeeded. I constantly still have fear about that. Of course with improv because you can't predict what's going to happen next. But I think the main way that you have to, you know, deal with it is a diagnose that it's okay for you to have this fear it's gonna it's gonna be fine and everybody has it um but also is the people of course like this is just a human thing not even a comedy thing or a writer thing but you have to have a good group of people who don't give a fuck if your joke landed or not who don't give a fuck if their joke landed in your show or not because they know that they're gonna we're gonna just do another one next week or in a month or even a year it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's all a joke it's fine it's gonna be fine that's perfect
1: and just so you know i'm probably going to try and cut that audio so that's like the last thing you say in the (gasps) podcast
0: what
1: because it's so nice what but it may not be okay i don't want to make promises
0: great because i have a lot of jewels a lot of jewels a lot of gems of course
1: you do that was improviser late night writer and late night host maggie smith To round off each episode of The Antidote, we're bringing you a performance of a comedy piece that was featured on The Belladonna and is now being brought to life by the vocal talents of readers from around the world. Here
2: is this episode's reading. A Calm Person's Tips and Tricks for Falling Asleep Written by Megan Peck Shuve, Read by Kathy D'Onofrio You can do this. Drink plenty of water. Meditate. No, really. Meditate. Allegedly, some people are successful at this. Like that lady your mom knows from water aerobics class? The one with the daughter who has a Wikipedia page, unlike you? Breathe. Turn off all screens 24 hours before bedtime. Do not check Twitter just one more time. Do not think about that weird thing that you said to that person six years ago at that party for some occasion. You had had three glasses of sauvignon blanc. Why did you do that? That person definitely remembers every second of that weird interaction. They're probably lying awake thinking about that right now. Do not think about random people like your ex from your junior year of high school. Isn't he in Chicago now? Chicago is nice. They put their garbage in alleyways. Sprinkle a few drops of lavender oil on your pillow and unwind in the relaxing aromas. Do not think about how relaxed you did not feel waiting in the 20-minute line to buy this lavender at the Columbus Circle Whole Foods while the guy behind you described his frat brother's bachelor party in Amsterdam. No, really. Twitter will still be there in the morning. Crystals. Shit. What do you do with crystals? Talk to them? Make a note to ask someone from LA, but do not make the note on a device with a screen. Padlock yourself inside your room, from the outside. Find somebody to do that for you. Try Craigslist. Tell them to unlock you only after you've gotten eight hours of sleep. You do not know how to bust open your door. Fuck it. Turn on your screen. Google how to bust open a door. Find the oddly fascinating 2017 New York Times article, How to Kick Open a Door. Aim just above the knob and hit with a flat foot. Bingo. Holy shit, that felt good. Throw a peace sign to the weirdo from Craigslist who's watching great British baking show in your living room as you grab your wallet. Get in a cab and tell the driver you need to head to the airport. Wow, this is dramatic. Get to the ticket counter. Demand a seat on the next flight to a peaceful destination. Watch as the agents all look at each other and say, this has never happened before. You're goddamn right this has never happened before. You're about to get some sleep. Google most calm cities. And the first result is Lewisboro, New York. Throw a peace sign to the confused ticket agents as you get back in a cab. Say to the cabbie, take me to Lewisboro." Google more about Lewisboro, home of Sarah Bishop, American hermitess. You have got to be kidding. This is perfect read an excerpt from an 1848 newspaper article to the cabbie, who is bewildered, but a good sport. Disgusted with men and consequently with the world, about 23 years ago, circa 1781, she withdrew herself from all human society and in the bloom of life resorted to the mountains which divide Salem from North Salem, near New York, where she has spent her days in a cave, or rather cleft of the rock. Take me to the cave, or rather, cleft of rock, you tell the cabby. Keep reading. This cavity is the habitation of the hermitess, in which she has passed the best of her years, excluded from all society. She keeps no domestic animals, not even fowl, cat, or dog. Her little plantation, consisting of half an acre, is cleared of its wood and reduced to grass, where she has raised a few peach trees and early plants a few hills of beans, cucumbers, and potatoes. Arrive at the cave, or rather, cleft of rock. Astute observation, you think, lying your head on a pillow of stone like the hermitus. Throw the cabbie a peace sign. Wave him away as he grabs your emergency contact from your phone. Throw it out the window, you tell him as he sets it beside you. You don't want to hear about your mother's friend from water aerobics. You are so exhausted. You do not check Twitter. Tomorrow you will plant a few hills of beans. But now, you will fall asleep.
1: Kathy D'Onofrio is an improviser, writer and actor based in Chicago. She performs regularly at Annoyance Theatre with her improv teams Nectar at IO Theatre, The Dark Web at CIC Theatre and around the city with her independent team Midnight in Miami. Megan peck is a producer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Her writing has appeared in The Belladonna Comedy, New York Magazine and The Independent. And you can find Megan's original piece, as well as links to The News with Maggie Smith and socials handles for everyone involved in this episode in the show notes. Next time, we catch a bus to visit web series writer, actor and stand-up comedian Jake Knoll. Who is your favourite vulnerable person?
2: Oh, wow. Um,
0: You know, right now, I think it's... Um, Glenn Close on Instagram or tell <laughs> me more I love following older celebrities on Instagram because they do not know what they're doing
1: you can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore belladonna's plural or find The Belladonna on Facebook or why not all of these things
0: until next time